How's everybody doing? You guys are a rowdy bunch this morning. I like it. Let's whew, calm down. All right. Uh, so uh, the big announcement, we have two services starting next week. So just so you know, we have a great uh, committed core of people that serve like crazy here and have, like Amy moved out here in the middle of COVID with her family and has been serving her butt off for over a year. She's a mom. She's a wife. She's been working full time. She just works her tail off. We have a lot of people very committed. We need sort of the next wave of people to step up. And I'm just going to kind of go right at some people right now, not names. You're like, gosh, this escalated quickly. (laughs) But I was looking kind of through people serving and the younger men in our church, sort of in that 20s, early 30s, you know, that think you got a lot going on and like possibly do but you need to step up. So if you're in that range, you need to sign up to serve in kids or in guest services. Because here's the deal. Like Bryce Hill, who plays guitar back here, he's here early every Sunday. He shows up. He's the first one here. He brings all his kids in tow. He just bought a puppy like a big knucklehead. He's got a lot going on. Full-time job. I asked Bryce, how's it going? Bryce never says, oh, I'm too busy. He just knows that's life. You just serve. You get to work. You serve, you get to work. So we need some more early and developing Bryce's to step up and to start serving and kind of put some weight on your shoulders. So guest services and kids is the way you can best serve. So the way you're going to do that is you're going to say, I'm one of those people you were talking to. Sign me up. Here's my email. So put that in the, the comment card and then drop it in the boxes, and we would love to get you connected. Because the way I grew most in my life was having a good dad who taught me a lot of things. The other way was being around people at church that were just a little ahead of me. And I was like, oh, that's how that works. And you don't get to see that if you just kind of pop in for service, sing, hear a sermon, and then pop out. So you need to show up, get to work, and let's do this thing together. So that's what I got for us as far as, that was my encouragement for the day. Uh, (laughs) But uh, Yeah, so let's go. And now we get to go back to the Gospel of John. I love preaching. I love teaching. I like teaching books of the Bible a ton because it sort of takes the thinking out of it. It's like, God, you said something. I've just got to figure out what you said and relay it to. And that's what we get to do. We've been in this countercultural series, which was great. We're tackling all these big topics of gender and sexuality, which are very important. But I also love to know that John is kind of scheduled until Easter next year. And God's going to strategically use this gospel to speak to us on the Sundays when we show up and open up to John 14. He's going to say what he needs to say to the people that are in the room. So that's what we're doing here is we're diving back in to John. Just to catch us up, John is one of the four gospels. If you didn't grow up in church, you're always kind of playing catch up. That was my story. So I'm always like, oh, okay, there's four gospels. Everyone talks about the gospel, but there's also four gospels. That's the four stories of Jesus' life. And three of them are very similar. It's almost like they cheated off each other on the test. Matthew, Mark, Luke have a lot of similarities. It's sort of the story of Jesus' life. And then you got John, who's sort of this hippie, Uh, artsy director who's less worried about telling the events of Jesus' life and more concerned about telling you who he thinks Jesus is based off what he saw. So John is like a director's cut. He just gets right out and says, this is who Jesus is. 93% of the material in the gospel of John is unique to John. You can't say that of the other gospels. They're all important, but John has this unique angle on the person of Jesus. It's where you get the seven I am statements that are famous. One of them in this one, I am the way, the truth, the life. The final one is I am the true vine. You need to abide in me. So we see these famous statements of Jesus saying, I am this. We see his big miracles. He raises Lazarus from the dead. The gospel of John 
is a beautiful book. And it's written by the Apostle John, brother of James. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as well, Revelation. He's done a lot of work to make Jesus knowable for us by the Spirit. And then I want you to, this is the only time I'm going to make you turn in your Bibles, but I want you to flip over just a couple pages to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and then we'll flip back and we'll hang out in John 14 the rest of the day. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So this is the writer of John telling you, here's why I wrote this book. See students in the room, you can understand what I wrote, because I'm going to tell you straight up. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these... The words in this book are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what John wants for us, to have life, not in the world, but in the name of Jesus. That's what we want for this church. That's what we want in this moment. That's why we're going to celebrate baptism as God brings new life. So let's pray and ask God to make John real in our hearts again this morning. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for books of the Bible. Thank you for the Bible as a story in and of itself. Thank you that we don't have to figure out life on our own. We just have to receive what you've said about life, about us, about you, about the world, about sin, about where we came from, where we're going, how it's all going to go down. We just have to receive it. So God, that's what this moment's for, is for you to give and us to receive. So I pray that you would give us your word again this morning as we tackle this book. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we get to dive into this. I am the way, the truth, and the life is one of the most famous statements of Jesus. It's a very tattooable uh, sort of verse you can put on your body. Some of you may have this tattoo on your body. But here's what I've been realizing as I've been studying it. I've been thinking of this verse mostly out of context, I think, my entire life. Because I hear, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I've always thought of that in terms of me talking to someone who does not know Jesus, which is some of you in this room potentially. And I would tell you, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. No one gets to the Father but through Jesus. It's sort of an evangelistic bridge to God. And what's fascinating is this passage is Jesus, his 11 disciples, who are all Christian in terms of believing. He's speaking this very famous evangelistic tool verse in a very personal, sort of all-Christian setting, which means it means more than just telling people who are out there how to get to heaven. It means telling people in here how to get heaven more into their life. That's what we're going to look at today, and Jesus is doing it in sort of an anxious context. We'll see in verse here, but he's talking to a troubled, unsettled, nervous bunch, and in, those, in that setting, he says, I'm the way the truth and life. But what we're going to do is walk through and see Jesus. How does he unsettle his disciples? He gives four reasons why they should believe in him and not be troubled. So that's what we're going to walk through. We got four reasons why they should believe in him. But let's just open up in verse 1, just set the context. What is going on here? Chapter 14, verse 1. It's in red, which means Jesus is speaking. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. That word troubled is sort of stirred up. Don't get stirred up. I picture like a snow globe. Like we all have these 
things laying dormant in our life, and there's seasons or times or moments or people that kind of stir us up, and those things that usually don't cause us anxiety are kind of brought up to the surface. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's like, hey, don't be stirred up. I see, I see it in your hearts. You're getting all worked up. Don't be troubled. What are they worked up about? Well, in this context, Jesus has made it abundantly clear, I'm leaving. He's made it abundantly clear he's also going to be killed. He's made it abundantly clear Judas was going to betray him. And he's made it abundantly clear Peter, the rock, the man, the guy who chopped off an ear, that guy is going to disregard Jesus when it matters most. And Jesus is sitting with them as all this is in their mind. And he could see it on their face. He says, don't be troubled. Don't be stirred up. Don't be anxious. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Just before we kind of get application for ourselves, let's just pause and realize Jesus is troubled by many things in this moment. He says it a couple of chapters earlier. He's troubled as he thinks about the cross, the impending wrath coming down on him for sins he did not commit. And he says his heart is troubled. So Jesus is troubled by a real death coming his way very shortly. His disciples are troubled by things that they're hypothetically thinking about. And Jesus does not lay any of his burdens on his disciples. It's like he wears the weight of the world in this moment so that he can love those even to the end. It's just a beautiful picture of what you'd expect God to be like if he came down in the flesh. Not like us petty humans who want to kind of lay all our burdens on everyone around us. Like me, I've, had a, I've just been feeling weird. Everyone that asks, how are you doing? I want to tell them exactly how I'm doing because I want you to handle this weight for me. Jesus is going to take on the cross, and he doesn't speak of it. He says, guys, don't be troubled. Let me, let's talk. Don't be troubled. What about in this? Are we got any troubles in here? Like coming out of this countercultural series, you could be sort of worked up just by the state of affairs in the world. Just turn on the news for any moment of time, and the stuff gets stirred up. As a pastor, I love to meet with people. It's like my favorite thing to do, and I love to ask about their work, just to see, like, how is faith interacting with their work? And more and more, I'm getting the sense that work is troublesome. It's hard. Like, and I don't want to sound like a young moron and say, it's the hardest time ever to be alive. Because people that have gone through actual real hard stuff and be like, you're a joke. <laughs> but it seems like Almost every profession I talk to is looking at a very hard current reality. They look ahead and they're like, I don't think it's going to get any better. Like Lance, a police officer that used to be our security man, I ran into him randomly next week. I'm like, how's it going? He's like, man, it is hard being a police officer. And he lays out everything going on, all the political stuff behind the scenes going on, everything before him, everything he's being told by his higher-ups. He's like, it's hard. He's like, it feels a lot like after September 11th when I was a chaplain. That's not coming from me. That's coming from a police officer who loves the Lord, follows the Lord, and saying, this is hard. Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't be stirred up. Believe in God. Believe also in me. All right, Jesus, I don't want to be troubled. How do, how do I deal with this troublesome? Here's where Jesus now tackles. Here's what I want you to believe in. Here's what I want you to think about. Here's what I want you to stir up in your heart as opposed to those anxieties. Think about these things. So here's the first thing I see. Jesus says, don't be troubled. 
because I've secured our future. The first thing Jesus goes to to sort of take our anxiety and settle it for us is our future. Where did I see that? Verse 2, let's read together. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? This is where, if you're from the 90s, you sing a great song. (laughs) My Father's house, lots of, lots of. Big, big table, lots and lots of. Big, big yard where we can play. And all the 20 something's like, I'm out of this church. I'm not serving or coming back here. I sang that to my wife last night. She said, if you sing that, I will leave the church. And she's serving in babies, so she can't do anything. They wrote that song based off this passage. This is a famous passage. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. What is he talking about? He's talking about heaven, and there's lots of space, lots of rooms. Some uh, people translate it mansions, which I don't think is the best translation. Here's the point. Jesus is going to prepare a place that is secure for us to dwell in for eternity. And we can sing songs about it. We can write poetry because it's true. Jesus is going to prepare A place for us. Heaven. Here's what's fascinating about heaven. I think the person that nails basic thoughts on heaven better than anyone in the world is the famous theologian Kenny Chesney. (laughs) Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Translation, we all like heaven, but it's not that glorious because none of us really want to get there too quick. And we got a lot more living to do here than there. We have a distorted, small, unbiblical view of heaven. Part of that's because it's sort of hard to understand heaven because it's not all that clear. But part of it's, I think Satan has just duped us to believe the lie of Kenny Chesney. Heaven's nice, but this is probably a little better. That's what we're all trying to figure out. Like, how good is it going to be with God? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. It's going to be amazing. One of my favorite shows that ended a couple years ago, The Good Place. This is going to be a spoiler alert if you're going to binge it later. Just, I loved it because it was all about heaven and hell from non-Christian people, just good old Hollywood people writing a story about. And it was very hidden what heaven and hell really were at the end. And I'm like, gosh, I wonder what they're going to say about it. I wonder if they're going to say something new about heaven that hasn't been said before. And I watched and I watched and I loved all the actors and it was great writing. And I get to the end, it was the most disappointing ending of any show I've ever watched. Because they basically just took a Buddhist mindset and said, here's what we think the afterlife is. You just kind of cease. You get wrapped up in the universe. That doesn't happen. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, a house, a real place where you're going to come and be with me. Heaven is a real place. It's where God is. It's where sin is not. It's where death is no more. It's where we get to dwell with God forever. Heaven is a real place. Do you think, this, as I was driving in this morning, I wrote this into my sermon. Do you think you think about heaven too much or too little if you had to assess yourself? Because when I was living in Texas, this old guy always had the statement that there's some people that are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Meaning, you guys are all just thinking about, and I get the opposite sense these days. We're so earthly minded, we're no good for either place, really. 
what do you do to stir up your affections for heaven or the place we're going to? We got to live in the present. I get that. We got to be right here in the moment, but we're going somewhere. Colossians says this, therefore, since you've been raised with Christ, strive for the things above, not necessarily just meaning heaven, but anything regarding God and eternity with him, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on heavenly things. Heaven, what's it like? For me, where my mind was blown the most was reading a book called Heaven, strangely enough, by a guy named Randy Alcorn. Because up until that point, I was not, I was Kenny Chesney. I was not looking forward to heaven. I knew I was forgiven and I knew there wasn't going to be any punishment, but there was nothing like pulling me in from heaven. There was no draw. It was like, ah, it'll be better than this place, but incrementally, I don't know like how much. And I read this book and he basically says, heaven is more glorious than you can ever imagine. He walks through the Bible, heaven and earth coming together, and heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, is everything we want in this world but don't have because sin has corrupted it. Is heaven going to be glorious? Yes, we need to set our mind on things above. Why? Because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm preparing a place for you? He's telling his disciples, don't be anxious, I'm going. They're like, yeah, I know, that's why we're anxious, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. What's that? Is he like fluffing pillows, you know, Peter's room? <laughs> he was a carpenter. He's like building a table. I think that's maybe part of it, like actually preparing. But I think he was making the preparation necessary for us to be able to access heaven at all. In the context, he's not to the cross yet. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to secure your home, and I'm going to secure the entrance to get into this home. I am going to the cross. Romans says this, It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare this for you. My death and resurrection prepares the fact that you have any shot of being in heaven. I'm taking care of it start to finish. I'm doing this work for you. Don't be troubled. Me going away is better for you. I'm going to prepare a place. Let's keep reading verse 2 there. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And let's just remember, at the very core, heaven is a relational place. It's where I get to be with God forever. And you get to be with God forever. And we get to be with God. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare your ability to get into heaven. I'm taking care of the, all necessary for this to happen. And I'm coming back to get you and bring you to myself. Jesus says, I want to be with you forever. And we get to be with him forever. When he comes back to take us home once and for all. Some of us are really ready for heaven. Some of us are still kind of on the uptick of life. I get that. But there's nothing better you could hear in your week than this news. Jesus goes to prepare a place for you, and he's coming back to take us to be with him forever. Therefore, don't be troubled. Your future is secure. No matter how rough it gets, Jesus is taking care of eternity for us. That's good news. What's the next thing we see? Don't be troubled because Jesus has given us the path. Where did I see that? Go to verse 4. I love this little interaction. Jesus says this, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
We don't even know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? She's like, you guys know. You know what's going on, right? It's like, so being a pastor, I got to meet a lot of people, obviously. And my wife is always like brought into conversations halfway. And I, was, I used to pull this a lot. And she was like, knock it off. <laughs> I'm like, you know. I'm like, hey, Aubrey. Hey, you, you know Jeff and Susie. You know. She's like, if you do that one more time, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and she's like, you know the way I'm going. And Tom's like, I don't know there or the path to get there. Total confusion. And it's not, I think he's speaking on behalf of everyone. Like, what? Jesus says so confident. You guys know. Like, duh, it's been three years. You guys got this figured out. And he's speaking for everyone. What? And Jesus says what to him? Verse 6. This is the most famous passage maybe in all of Christianity. Jesus says to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That's a good word spoken to a troubled set of believers trying to navigate a world where they didn't have all the answers. And their circumstances were barreling down on them. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm it. I'm it. Like, the most beautiful thing of that is the simplicity. There's one option to find life in. Like, I've said this story a lot. I hate grocery shopping. My wife loves, who died? I met with Andrew Johnson. He says he loves grocery shopping. There's people that love grocery shopping. I hate it. Because you go and you're like, I need, Aubrey says, I need nutmeg. All right, nutmeg. I go to the nutmeg aisle. It's like 67 nutmeg options. I'm like, oh, my gosh. The only place I can bear to shop is Costco because they basically give you one option. Do you want two pounds of nutmeg or no nutmeg? I'll take two pounds of nutmeg, please. We live in a world with so many options. Part of the anxiety that's especially in younger people is this world is like this blank canvas where everyone's kind of yelling and whispering like, you got it all in front of you. It's like, that's not that good news. Like, that's too, ma- that's too many options. It's me at Friday. Ah. Like, I was watching a news story last night about schooling, and now there's a new schooling option, micro-schooling. This gal who was a homeschooler, she now has created this new schooling model. It's like, now we have another schooling option. If I want to go public, private, charter, homeschool, non-school, anti-school, da-da-da, what are the options? We have every option in every lane of life to pick from. Jesus tells us in this room, just so you know, if you want the way, it's me. If you want truth, it's me. And if you want life at all, it's in me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one in that context, now he's saying, gets to the Father but through me. No one gets the way, the truth, or the life unless they come through me. So, disciples, don't be troubled. You have what you're looking for. The option is in front of you. Don't overcomplicate this. And I'm going to get that can sound like, but life is complicated. I get that. But part of discipleship is kind of looking at the blank canvas or the melee of options and like, okay, what's Jesus saying in the middle of this? Because that's where I want to be. He's the way. He's the truth. And he is the life. One of my favorite verses is in John 17. It says this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do we know life? We know Jesus, period. Where do we get life? Jesus. How do I know the way? Jesus. How do I know what to do for next week? Jesus. That doesn't clear it all up, but it narrows your options down to one, and that's a lot better way to live than thinking every option is a viable option. 
I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Do you know Jesus? This is where I want to say, if you're not in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't placed your faith, you are in a world where you have a thousand options to choose from. But only one person has ever showed up, said words like this, predicted his own death, predicted his own resurrection, did both, proving that any word he said needs to be listened to. And Jesus tells you in this room right now, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus says to us. Don't be troubled. Jesus has given us the way. Here's the third thing we see as we walk through this passage. Don't be troubled. Believe that Jesus has actually made God knowable. Where do I see that? Starting at the end of verse 6. He just says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's read verse 7 through 11 there. Verse 7, Jesus just goes on a sort of repetitive rant here. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And again, the interjects and Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? You still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I think this is, gets to the heart of the anxiety of the disciples. They've been with them three years. Anytime they've needed anything, they've had this Messiah guy at their side, ready to fix, step in, correct, do anything to take care of this. And now Jesus is like, I'm leaving, by the way. They're like, ah. And Philip's response is, well, just show us the Father. If you're leaving, then show me the Father, and then I'll grab onto that one. He's like, don't you get it? We're the same. Father's me. I'm in the Father. We are the same. And this interaction shows Jesus says, you have everything you need. As the as disciples are probably struggling with, like, do we have what it takes to exist with him gone? And in their answer, in their head, is probably, no, we don't. Philip says, okay, if he's gone, let's get the next best thing. Let's get the Father. Well, show us the Father then. And then Jesus goes in. We're the same. Like, just to give you a summary of what we just read. Verse 6, here's what Jesus says. If you come to Jesus, you've come to the Father. So it's sort of, you've come to the same person. Verse 7, if you know me, then you know my Father. Verse 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Uh, end of verse 10, the words that I speak are my Father's words. Verse 11, the works I perform are the Father's works. I think Jesus' summary statement can be found in verse 7. He says this, from now on you do know him, the Father, and you've seen him. Why? Because you've seen me. Translation, I've made the Father knowable, and you know him because you know me. I get you're anxious and troubled. But the thing we need more than anything in this world is to know God and to be known by God. And Jesus says that has been taken care of. Like, think about what you need this week. You're parenting. You're trying to build a business. Like, there's a lot of things. Even... I read this good book that kind of relieved a lot of anxieties because I got all these plates spinning in my head. And it basically said, like, you're not that big a deal. I'm like, okay, that was a good reminder. (laughs) 
So we all need sort of a reminder, like we're not that big a deal, but we also need a reminder, like the thing we all need is relationship with God. We need to know God in whatever we're doing, and we need to be known by God in whatever we're doing. Like I have this one guy who I love, he asks, like, how do I get better at being a pastor? How do I get better at being this? And he asked another guy, and he, I gave him all these like practical, well, read your, you know, read your Bible, and da, 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 like very practical, great answers, I thought. He met with another guy, and he says, get to know God. And it'd be the same answer if you were a plumber. What we all need is to get to know God. That's it. Now, that doesn't like, I don't want plumbers that know what they're doing. That's not what I'm saying. But in every aspect of life, what we need is to know God because God knows it all. He knows us. He knows what we're doing. He knows that all fits together. What we need is to know God. And Jesus says, that's possible because I am the Father. The Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen him. You got it right here, disciples. You're fine. But more than just knowing God, we need to be known by God. And Jesus like, just so you know, I'm leaving. But the way I interacted with you, the way I was close to you, my friendship with you, that's how God sees you, disciples, as I take off. Like we're in soccer season right now, and sweet little Ozzy, little three-year-old, uh, three-year-old soccer's the best. <laughs> how many goals did you score, Ozzy? 16. <laughs> Every time he scores a goal, he turns around, and he looks, and he just wants mom and dad looking at him, smiling, and then he's good. We are no different than Ozzy. We need to know God, but we also need to know that God is looking down. God is with us. God is smiling. Amen. That is possible. That is a reality for us in the room as Christians because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've seen him, you've seen me, and I've given you access. Don't be troubled. I've taken care of the big problem, separation between God and man. Now we have access and relationship and friendship and delight from the Father in heaven because of Jesus. That is good news. And therefore, Jesus can say, don't be troubled. I've made God knowable. That's all you really need. And then finally, what do we see? This is where it just gets amazing, if it hasn't been good already. Don't be troubled. Jesus says, there's greater work for us in his absence. Let's read verse 12 here. Again, backstory. Disciples like, can we really do this without him? Verse 12, Jesus tells them, and by extension tells us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. In greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Peter's like, I can't do this. Tom's like, I can't do this. Philip's like, I can't do this. And Jesus says, when I leave, the same works I've been doing, you will do. Like, think about that. What's in their head? That he calmed the storm. The sea went still with his words. Peter's mother-in-law, sick, possibly dying. Jesus walks in, boop, pops right up, makes some muffins. Fixed. Lazarus dead. Rise, Lazarus. He rises. All those in their, the back of their mind. And Jesus says, you will do the works that I've done. That is mind-blowing. Therefore, don't be troubled. Everything you've seen me do, you're going to keep doing. That's fascinating. I've never raised a man from the dead. I've never healed anyone. How do I make sense of this very fascinating passage where Jesus says, the same works you've seen me do, you're going to do. 
I think it points to any work that we do that points to the witness of Jesus Christ being who he says he is. And that has happened for any of us in this room that are believers in Jesus. You will do the works. You will spend your money. You will listen in a way. You'll be curious. You will love. You will lay down your life. You will serve. You will do all these things I've done. And people will say, I wonder what's different about Dan. Why is Dan, the CPA, so much different than every other guy I deal with? Dan, what's going on? And Dan will tell you very quickly. Let me tell you about somebody. His name is Jesus. You will do the works that you've seen me do. And then Jesus says, you will do greater works. Pause right there. Jesus Christ, talking to the disciples as they kick off and try to go start the church right before his death and resurrection. And he says, you will do greater works than these. What does that mean? Because here's what you could hear that as. And this could be what happens after the service. If you have sort of a charismatic background, and you're like, well, that means... You go into all these signs and wonders involved with the Holy Spirit. Is that what Jesus meant? Just you're going to do kind of miraculous signs, Holy Spirit motivated signs, speaking in tongues. And, uh, that seems too limiting to me. The way I think I understand this, you'll do greater works than this, is where he says there, because I am going to the Father. The works are going to be greater because I am going to the Father to sit at his right hand as the king over all this. Therefore, your works are going to be greater. In light of that, Jesus is no longer geographically limited. The Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke is all limited to this very small part of the Middle East. Jesus' work was done in the Middle East. Jesus never made it to America. Jesus never made it outside of his boundary. And he says, because I go to the Father, greater works. So the scope is going to get bigger. I'm going to be king over the whole world. And you are going to be my representatives here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the world, Jesus says. Therefore, your works are going to be greater. And we are a sign of that. Why else is it going to be greater? Here's the other thing I think. As the resurrected Savior, his work on earth now through us is going to be based off what he has already accomplished, which is unique to human history. Up to this point, our friends in the Old Testament are looking ahead, looking ahead, looking ahead to a moment when God was going to act definitively to forgive them of their sin. Now Jesus says, I'm going away to the Father, and your work's going to be greater. Why are they greater? Because now we don't look ahead to Jesus acting. We look back to something that's already been done. We point back to a finished work. That's far greater than one day. It's a spouse saying, one day, I promise. We're going to go on that vacation. I promise. It's looking, you remember that vacation we went on last year? It's going to be better than that one. Now we get Jesus and we say, look back to what he's done. His death, his resurrection. We stand on the finished work of Jesus and our work is greater. And Jesus is still at work through the church. We're in the postseason. This is the end of the story. The church is going to rein it all in. Jesus did his work once. Next time he comes back, He's coming back to make all things new. And we get to be a part of this chapter of the story doing greater works than him. That is phenomenal. Therefore, disciples, don't be troubled. Your work matters. Your life matters. I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with any of you yet. You're still at work. Greater works than these will I perform through you. 
Well, how's that going to happen, Jesus? Last verse in here. Verse 14. Or verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And Jesus says, don't be troubled. Rather than being just you and me side by side, our relationship's going to be one of prayerful dependence from here on out. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I could spend a lot of time geeking out on what that doesn't mean. Ferrari, in Jesus' name. (laughs) In the heart, in the will, in the desires of the Father, we get to pray in Jesus' name, and it will be done. He promised that to them. And as I was prepping this, I thought, when was the first time this happened for them? And they went back and like, it's exactly like he said it. Like, when's the first time they prayed Jesus gone out of the picture after his ascension? He's actually sitting on the throne. The disciples are like now looking around. It's like, all right, it's us 11 now. All right, are we going to do this thing? Let's do this thing. When's the first time they said, in Jesus' name, and saw it happen? Acts 3. The lame beggar. Like all of us, apart from Jesus, we have nothing to offer and no resources to get us to God. We are lame beggars by birth. We got nothing to get us what we need in God's eyes. A lame beggar. And that's who Peter meets on the road. And he says this to them. Silver or gold I do not have, but this is what I have to give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Walk. And he gets up and walks. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. That is amazing. That is the church. We get to be the ones that say, I don't have much. I don't have silver. I don't have gold. I got a little crypto, but it's not worth much. (laughs) What I do have is I met this person. And it's in his name I want to pray for you. Get up and walk. Amen. Here's what I want to do. I want to bow our heads and spend a little bit of time quiet. Just with ourselves and with the Lord. Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, it will be given. I just want us to have some quiet time to kind of think about what are the things we're praying for in the name of Jesus. Jesus, these words are huge encouragement and also humbling to sort of use as an assessment on what I've been praying for. I don't know who can relate to me, but God, we just confess that we are not as heavenly-minded as we ought to be. We are an earthly bunch. We are prone to things of this earth. Not in a bad sense, but in the things that don't last, that don't matter ultimately. 
like a moth to a light, I am constantly drawn to that thing that does not last. So God, help us be a praying church, a praying bunch that takes these words, this promise you give here in John 14, that anything you ask in my name, it will be given. And we don't go around and beat people down with that, but we build people up through our prayer life. So God, help us to pray more. Pray deeper prayers. Pray more long-term prayers. Pray more prayers that align with your will so that we can see your power at work through our prayers, Father. God, we love you so much. Thanks for your word. And thanks for revealing yourself even more to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.